please don't go just yet. One more, one more. <laughs> or maybe this, this is your chance. <laughs> hey, welcome. All of you uh, 1045ers out there, do this right here. All right, bless your hearts. Yeah, all the 9 o'clockers salute you. Good job. This is good. You can call your mom today. Say, I did it. came to church early this morning. Hey, I'm Brian McCoy, and I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here. If you're a guest joining us this morning, thanks for, for being with us. I want to try to reorient us a little bit because we have been in a, in a message series that uh, I don't know whether I should say this or not, but it feels a little long because it started in March. Remember March? 60 degrees, 50 at night. It was awesome, right? right? I mean, uh, it was good. But uh, we started in March with this series, Understanding and Loving What Christ Loves. And we have identified that as the church. It is the church that Jesus loves supremely. Uh, we saw in Matthew 16 that Jesus said, I will build my church. And Dennis took us to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes about the bride of Christ, that that's the church. And Jesus gave his life for the church. He poured out his life's blood to redeem for himself a people called by his name. And one day, he will take us home to heaven to be with him. And we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the scripture talks about. Jesus loves the church. The most precious thing on the planet is the church. So shouldn't we, yes, thank you, shouldn't we love the church as well, right? Yeah. And so we've talked about that through seven sermons. We've talked about the essence of the church. We've talked about the roles and responsibilities of leaders in the church, elders and pastors. We've talked about the roles and responsibilities of the, of the leading servants in the church, the deacons and how they minister and serve. We've talked about the two things that Jesus ordered the church to do. The ordinances, baptism, which is your public profession of faith in Christ. And the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, that's when we come together as a church. We do that once a month here, and we take the bread and the cup, and it helps us to remember how deep our sin truly is, how great his sacrifice was, and how awesome it is going to be that he has not only redeemed us, he is saving us, and one day, ultimately, we will have all of the life that he promised to us in heaven with him. And so we're looking forward to that. And then last week, Pastor B took us vertical. I mean, pulled the stick back, and we talked about worship in the church and that we are God's people saved for his glory, for the sake of the fame of his name across all of the earth, and that together as the church, we're meant to be a body of Christ that gives him glory. And no, that's what, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, next Sunday, we're going to finish this series of sermons, Lord willing, and it's going to be a sermon on the message of the church, the gospel. But today... Are you ready? We're going to talk about membership in the church. I knew it. A warm spiritual fuzzy just went all over your heart right there, didn't it? I, I, I knew it. Listen, you know, if you're like most people, the word membership does not bring any kinds of feelings of warmth typically, right? It, it remind, you're reminded of membership when, when you get these weird notices in the mail from credit card companies. You know, they want you to join or, or you, you decide you're going to go to the gym and maybe you made that decision in January or late December or maybe you're coming around to it in June. You said, I'm going to get back there and they're, they're trying to make a pitch to you. That's, that's what membership feels like. And, and then often when churches talk about membership, we think of it in kind of bureaucratic terms. Oh, church, church has membership so they can keep track of people. They know when you've attended and when you haven't, and they know whether you give or not. And we all know that that's what most churches are most concerned with. That's what membership is. You know, the truth of the matter is this is an uphill climb this morning because there's no verse in the Bible that explicitly commands you to join a church. 
Okay, we're done. No. There's no verse in the Bible that explicitly says you should join a church. But I'm hoping by the end of our time together to convince you, to persuade you that membership in the church is something that you shouldn't run from, but you should run into it. That you should grasp it with both hands and lean into it fully and wholly. And I want you to see that from several places in Scripture. The truth of the matter is, in our culture, many churches are putting aside membership. Because I think culturally, as, as, as people in the West, in America, we, we're, we're becoming a, a nation that's not pursuing spirituality as a community anymore. It's very individualistic. And so we run after it just that way. And, and people attend churches based on what they might offer on a particular Sunday. So you might say, well, I wonder who's speaking in that church on that day. Or, oh, I've went there and I really like their music. Or I like the room that they meet in. Or they have wonderful programs for their kids on certain days of the week. And so I'll go there. And so you might, if you're a ch church attender, and I'm assuming you are because you're here, then you may go to one or two or three different churches. You may say, well, I, I identify with all of those. Here's the deal. We, we have become consumers of spiritual goods and services as a people. Is that the picture of the church in the New Testament? I want to argue with you this morning to say that it is not, that it is something far, far deeper. What does it mean from the New Testament to belong to the church? Is there any scriptural evidence for becoming a member of a local church. Here's the big idea I want to give you this morning. That local church membership is the life of committed relationships and responsibilities to which every Christian is called. That is cross-cultural. It doesn't matter if you live in Indonesia or Malaysia or in Russia or right here in Arizona. Local church membership is the life of committed relationships and responsibilities to which every Christian is called. Once you come to faith in Christ, you are part of the church. But God longs for you to become a member of a local church, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to give you three ways that I believe this is true out of the Scripture. So if you're ready, here we go. This is the first way. Every Christian is called to identify with and belong to a local church, and that's where we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, before we get to that, just for one more moment, the word church first appears in the New Testament from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, in response to Peter's confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, on this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. I will build my church. It's a simple Greek compound word. It means to, to be those who are called out from. We, we could go through the rest of the New Testament and use all kinds of imagery to fill that out. Those who've been called out of darkness and into the light of Christ. Those who've been called out of the world and into Christ. That's what the church is, the ones who've been called out. And in Jesus' uh, frame of reference here in Matthew 16, he's talking about the capital T, capital C church. The universal church, as it were, or the global church, if you will. All of the believers from all of time, from every people on the planet, those who would confess Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer from sin. He is the Son of the living God. Now, some of you that are very technical are correcting me in your mind. Because that's only true for New Testament believers, right? There wasn't a church in the Old Testament. But certainly all of those in the Old Testament who were trusting in God, who had faith in God to deliver and to save, they are Christians, as it were. They are believers. They've been saved. How? Through faith. Faith that God would do what he promised, and that is to send one who would deliver his people. 
And so there is this universal church, and it takes in everyone across all of the ages who have put their faith and trust in Christ. But 114 times, of the 114 times the word church is used in the New Testament, 90 of those times it's used of a local church, of a particular church in a specific location. Let me show you that right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read this together, all right? There's a funny name here, but we'll get through it. Let's read it together. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our Lord. And so Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, to a particular group of believers in a certain place in Corinth. And he says to them, notice what he says to them, he says, you guys are all called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of Christ. And so there you see the two levels of the church, the universal church, all of those in every place who call upon Jesus. But Paul is writing a letter to a group of believers in Corinth. He's not writing a letter to all of the Christians in the world in the first century. He's writing to the Corinthian church right there, and he's answering some of their questions. He's addressing some specific concerns. He's trying to help them untie some uncomfortable knots, as it were. He's challenging them on some certain things. He's writing a unique letter to a unique group of believers who gather together there in the city of Corinth. They've identified to, one, to each other as believers in Christ. If you turn your Bible back just a couple of pages to Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, you'll see this kind of example again right there. I put it on the screen just in case you get lost, turn on a couple of pages. Here it is. Let's read this out loud together. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. I love that wording. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, did you see how that, that flows? In the last part of that verse, in verse 5, he says, greet the church, not in the city, but the church in their house. And, and he says, and also, greet the churches among the Gentiles. I know it's a small sample. Romans 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a small sample, but, but notice that Paul does not say, to the part of the church that meets in Corinth or to the part of the church that meets in their house, or to the parts of the church that meet among the Gentiles. Now, each one of these particular gatherings of believers are referred to as a local church. Each one of them. They're all local churches. This is the pattern of the New Testament, where individual believers identify with and belong to a local body of Christ who gathers together regularly. Pastor B last week took us into the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John writes seven letters to seven churches. All of those letters are addressed specifically to a particular group of believers in a certain location. It's actually a postal route, if you will. And, and these letters float along that route. But all of those believers belong to certain churches. If you go back and look at those seven letters today, you'll notice that the framework for all of those letters is very similar. There's almost always a commendation. There's almost always a challenge about sin. There's almost always a call to action and repentance. The framework is the same for all of them, but the content is very different. Why is that? 
Because each church is made up of unique individuals. Each church is different. Each church is unique. Paul talked about that and fleshed it out, if you can say that, when he talked about the church as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. The church, this demonstrates to us, I think, that every Christian is called to identify with and belong to a local church. That's God's heart for us, to live out among those believers a life of committed relationships and responsibilities together. What about you? You're in the room this morning. It's a Memorial Day weekend. Uh, if you live in this community and you're professing faith in Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm curious, are you a member here at Foothills? Are you a member here? Or maybe you say, well, I'm not a member here, but I'm, I'm looking. I might want to be a member of this church. And, and we used to go to church, and it was across the mountain and up in Phoenix or out in Tempe or in Mesa. And I'm looking, awesome, we're glad that you're here. You should consider joining a church, becoming part of a local body of believers nearest where you live. You should do that. If you're a guest this morning and you're in from out of town, enjoy the weather. It's going to be great. Are you a member of a local church near where you live? If you're a Christian, are you part of a local gathering of believers? Because the testimony of the New Testament tells us that we ought to belong together. We identify with one another in certain local churches in particular places. Some people kind of push around on that a little bit. They say, well, I, you're still not telling me that we actually have to join a church, right? And I like to go to different churches, and I enjoy hearing different speakers from time to time and hearing different music. And, you know, that church, they really have some really great programs for my kids. And, and I like the speaker at this church, but the programs are better over here. So I, I'm kind of floating around. Well, let me give you another reason why I think it's important for you to be part of a local church. Not only to identify with and belong there, but here's the second piece of it. That every Christian is called to follow local leaders in the church. Every Christian is called to follow the leaders of a local church. Now this is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It's on page 1010. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack, you can find it quickly there. Throughout the New Testament, the Bible speaks of this office of leadership in three terms. Pastors and elders and overseers. Hey, uh, can, I, can I give you, this is just a little parenthetically between you and me. Have we talked about this a lot over the last year? Thank you. It's all the same office, right? And, and that's what Paul is getting to here in this passage, or whoever wrote Hebrews. Maybe I just, that was a Freudian slip maybe, but uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, he says this, right? Look at this verse 17. It's on, the, it's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is an easy verse to preach on if you're a pastor. <laughs> it's a little, you know, it can really make you very self-aware and uh, self-conscious. Maybe that's the right word. And uh, it's just... It's loaded, right? I mean, it sounds self-serving. Obey your leaders and submit to them. But let's press into the second half first, all right? We'll get to the uncomfortable part in a minute. It says they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The pastors, the elders of any particular local church are responsible to God Almighty. And in their role, one day, someday, they will give an account to God for the members of the church that they shepherded, that they led. Who will the pastors and elders of Foothills be accountable to God for? All of the Christian believers in Ahwatukee? How about all of the Christian believers in Phoenix? Impossible. 
all of the believers, all of the Christians who identify and belong to Foothills Baptist Church, that's who the eldership, that's who the elder team here is responsible for. We will stand before God one day and give an account for you and for how we led. In Acts chapter 20, verse 38, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the elders in the church in Ephesus. And he says this to them. He says, I want you to be responsible to care for the flock of God that has been entrusted to you. Have you ever been given an heirloom by some family member, something that was precious and needed to be kept? And you, you put it in a special place, right? I mean, you take care with it. You, you, it's been entrusted to you. The church, think about this. Jesus loves the church. It's the most precious thing in the world. And to whom has he entrusted the church? Flawed, sinful, sometimes self-serving men to be leaders of the church. He's entrusted it to us. And the more we can remind ourselves, I'm preaching to myself a little bit and my brothers, the more we can remind ourselves that this is our role and this is our responsibility before God, the better off we'll be. And the better we'll be in leading you and serving you and protecting you and defending you and caring for you and teaching you. That's our, that's our role. That's our position. And that's what, that's what Paul said to those elders, that this flock has been entrusted to you. And think about it this way. Use that image of a flock, that metaphor. Every shepherd knows all the sheep in his flock. Jesus said it this way. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. There's an intimate relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. And that same thing ought to be true for the pastors, the leaders, the elders of a local church and the members of that church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter said, you elders and you pastors, you must shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he lists several other things that they should do. And he says, lastly, be examples to them. It's hard for me to be an example to believers who are at North Phoenix Baptist Church. It's impossible. They're not among me, right? And I'm not among them, but I'm among you. And here we are together. We identify with one another in this local church, and it's possible to shepherd you this way. Just this way. The Bible makes it clear that elders and pastors are responsible to God for a particular group of believers who are members of a specific local church. And that means we ought to know who the members are. And so membership, just that way. Can I let you know one of the most, I think one of the most important weighty ways that this really matters for us as a church. I brought, if you notice, I brought this big black notebook up here with me. And uh, this is not the second sermon I'm going to preach this morning, but it's a list. It's a couple of lists, actually. There's one list in here. You can't really see that, but it's, uh, there are four lists, actually. And they're all divided up a week at a time. Every member of our church is on this list. Divided across four weeks and divided five days of the week. And so uh, week one are all the folks whose last name end with A. That makes sense. And then there's a week two list and so on. Every member of Foothills and your children are on this list. And your elders, your pastors, take this list and every week we get to pray for some of you. So that at the end of the month we've prayed through all the members of the church. Now, that's, that's pretty cool, and we love doing that. But another thing that we're able to do, Penny Wilson, our ministry assistant, does this every week. And so, I don't know when she does this. When do you do this, Penny? When do you send that email out? Monday? Tuesday? Something like that. She sends it out early. I'm not going to put her on the spot because you might be looking for that email. It doesn't come until the next day, right? I knew what you were thinking. So, uh, so she sends an email out to the people who we will be praying for next week. So some of you got that email this week. And she said, hey, will you send us a prayer request? 
she turns all those requests that get sent in into a document and they, they, they arrive in our email inboxes and we can print them out and I, I put it in a notebook so I keep track of them. And some of you are asking for, for amazing things for us to pray for, for just spiritual growth and health, for concerns and questions about, about maybe your children or your parents, financial issues that you're facing, physical issues that you're facing. I mean, there are a lot of things that you are opening up and sharing with us, would you, would you do us the privilege of allowing us to pray for you at that level? When you get that email in your box, would you put something in there and say, would, would the elders and the pastors of my church, would you pray for me that way? This is just one of the ways, and I think one of the most important ways that this matters in the life of the church. The elders, the pastors, you should follow the leaders of a local church, and it's our responsibility to care for you well, and this is one way that we do it. Leadership is a two-way street, though. John Maxwell put it this way. He said, the person who thinks he is leading and has no one following is only taking a walk. <laughs> and so it goes both ways, right? I mean, we're supposed to lead, but if nobody's following, what are we doing, right? I mean, it doesn't make much sense. And Hebrews 13, 17 is a command for every Christian to follow. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Follow the leaders. Think about that for just a, a moment. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to to, to follow every leader, every Christian leader in every church in Ahwatukee or in Phoenix, it means you follow the leaders of the church to which you belong. Right here at Foothills, for instance. It means you're supposed to follow us. It is not a blind allegiance, right? It's not unquestioned submission. It means that as leaders, as an elder team, for instance, the only authority we have is God's word. If we are asking you to go in a particular direction that's thoroughly unbiblical, that's completely unethical, or for heaven's sakes, if it's illegal, stand up and say, no. That's your responsibility. So it's our responsibility to lead, but you can't, you can't just turn your ears and your eyes off or your mind off. We need one another in this way. And so you're meant to follow the leaders. You cannot obey this scriptural command unless you commit yourself to a life of committed relationships and responsibilities in a local church. Let me fill it out. Committed relationships. Oh, I know McCoy. He's, he's one of my spiritual leaders. I know Burris. He's one of my spiritual leaders. I know John. So he's one of my spiritual I know them. There's relationship there. You are my spiritual leader. And there's responsibility. I will follow. I believe under Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, that you gentlemen are praying and seeking God's face, and I will trust Christ by following you. That's what I'll do. And it's our responsibility to lead that way. It is no wonder then, right, that a lot of people and a lot of churches are moving away from membership. Because if there's this true, really biblical understanding that leaders are accountable to God for the way that they lead and members must follow the leaders, then it's humbling stuff that works in both directions. It's not simple and it's not easy. But if Hebrews 13, 17 is going to be a reality in our lives, then we've got to commit to each other in a local church setting. It only makes sense in that way. Now, let me do the third one. And it just gets heavier and more humbling. Are you ready? I feel, I feel like we're going down further in the mind. We need to switch our lights on now. It's, it's getting tough. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, under this banner, that every Christian is called to want and accept mutuality and accountability in a local church. Every Christian is called to want and accept mutuality and accountability in a local church. Now that's a mouthful, but here it is. In Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching the church. 
We remember Matthew 16, he talks about the church for the first time. Now he's, now he's, he's really focusing in on, I think, a local church issue. He's going to talk to them about how to reconcile relationships and how to build relationships with one another. And so this church, made up of people who have professed Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he speaks into their life. Look at what he says, verse 15. Let's read it out loud together. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Stop right there. So that's good, right? Ring the bells, everybody's happy, we're smiles again, and it's a good thing. If a brother sins against you, if they slander your name all over the place, if they are gossiping and talking about your business, and, and, and you hear about it, it comes back to you, instead of getting all worked up and telling 10 of your best friends, go privately to your brother or your sister and say, hey, this has come back to me, and can we have a conversation? And see what the Lord won't do. All right, And then, if that doesn't happen, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But, look at that, keep reading. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, hang on right there. So that's the next step. And it's not that you find two or three of your best friends that you know doesn't like this person. <laughs> that's not it at all, right? You, you actually would do better to find two or three people who know you and that person well. And bring them together. Because what's important is, is what God wants in the life of his church. And there may be some movement that needs to happen in your heart as well as theirs. So that's how you work through it. And then let's, let's read through the next piece there. Give it to me, Adam. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let's just say that little phrase right there one more time at the end. Tell it to the church. What church should you tell it to? The local church. Thank you. Wow, we're already with it, right? Not every church in Ahwatukee, not every church in Phoenix, to this local church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, stop right there. This is where it gets odd, right? Now, this gets really difficult. We've gone through step one, step two, and we, there's no time frame for any of that, right? But you've got to understand that this is not something that happened on Sunday and then we deal with it on Monday and then by Wednesday, we're coming to the church, right? This, we're talking about something that might take uh, weeks, certainly months, because we're talking about relationships. We're talking about people, human beings, and we want to care for one another and we're, we're trying to fly under the leadership of the Spirit of God in the life of the church. And so it may take some time, but once you get to the church, it is a big deal, right? It's a big deal. And he says, treat them as a tax gatherer or a, or a, or a Gentile. It's, it's, it's cultural language. Treat this person who seemed to have professed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, at one time, but now their life seems to have taken a turn. It seems to be apparent to everyone who's weighed in. And they're really behaving and acting like someone who's never truly ever had faith in Christ. Treat them that way. Now, how do you treat this is a loaded question because you may not even yet be a follower of Christ. How, do, how are Christians supposed to treat non-Christians? How are we supposed to live with them? How are we supposed to do that? We're supposed to love them, right? And pray for them and care for them and invite them along with us and share the gospel with them. We should, that should be the posture. That's the posture of what you should be reading right there. That's, that's the outlook of what's going on in that text. But it's not easy. Treat them as, as a tax collector or a Gentile. We're saying, hey, there's evidence lacking that you're actually a believer in Christ. Can we go all the way back and hear your testimony? Is Jesus real in your life, brother? 
Is Jesus real in your life, sister? Because your behavior is not bearing that out. What authority, by what authority, does a church operate like that? How, how can we do that? Look at this next, the next piece of the verse. It's verse 18. Jesus said, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's an odd thing to say, right? And, it, and it's twisted a lot of commentators in knots. It's the second time Jesus has actually used that phrase. The first time, you might guess, is in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? Peter blurts it out. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds and says, Peter, this is true. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father is in heaven. This is divine intervention that you've spoken the truth, Peter. And Peter, on this rock, Peter, whose name is Rock, on this rock, a different word, on this rock, this rock of your testimony, that I am the Christ. The Son of the living God. On that rock, on that confession of faith, I will build my church. And then he says, Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In that same passage in Matthew 16. And he says the same thing there. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's an unusual phrase. But this is what I think is going on there. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he's, he's saying to them, Peter, I'm going to give you these keys, this, this authority. Oh, I left them in the pew. I have church keys. I can't, I can't get you into every room in the building, right? Uh, Pastor V is probably glad that he gave up his church keys a few years ago, you know, because when you have keys, everybody wants them, right? Everybody want, is looking for a way in. If you want keys, here's the person with authority at Foothills Baptist Church, Greg Dries. He can get you into any door in the building. Don't ask me, don't ask David Gantenbein, don't ask any of us. We don't know where we're going. That guy has got the authority. Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. What in the world does all of that mean? Listen, every time Peter shared the gospel through the early parts of the book of Acts, it was as if he was taking the keys that Jesus had entrusted to him and he was unlocking the door to the kingdom of heaven. Every time he preached the gospel, he was unlocking the door. And people had opportunity to hear the gospel and believe and trust in Christ and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they were welcomed into the community. And their faith was affirmed by the other believers who were there. That's what was going on in that place. And by extension, it's not just Peter who does that. Peter's long gone. Who do the keys belong to? The keys belong to the church. The keys belong to the body of Christ, to all of those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So every time we preach the gospel, every time you share the gospel, it's like you're taking the keys and you're putting them in, in the door. And you're unlocking it and you're opening that door wide and saying, brother, come in. It's good. Believe. Trust in Christ. Now that's the really great side. That's the positive side. But in this example here in Matthew 18 where Jesus is talking about this, it's kind of the negative side. On the other hand, when we have declared the gospel to a brother or sister in Christ who seem to be persisting in unrepentant, blatant, public kinds of sin, and they refuse reconciliation, this has become the pattern of their life, it's the direction of their life, then it is obvious that they may profess faith in Jesus, and in fact, they may be vehement about it. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not going to do this anymore. Or I'm a Christian, and I just don't agree with that any longer. And I'm just going to live my life this way. They may really protest, but the direction of their life is completely 180 degrees away from what Scripture said. Well, that's when we say, I can't affirm your profession of faith, brother. 
I can't affirm this any longer. I've got to come to you and treat you like a non-Christian. I've got to share the gospel with you because I want you to follow Jesus fully. Paul applies this teaching in 1 Corinthians 5. You know, um, let, me, let me take a, just a little mind break for you for a second. This is one of the difficulties of a topical sermon because you're chasing me through the New Testament, right? And so uh, I'm sorry for that. It's just where we're at right now. I'm feeling your pain. We were talking about it yesterday, last Sunday. feels like yesterday. So here we are. Now we're back in 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul is applying what Jesus has just taught. That's what I believe. I think it's pretty clear there. And look at what he says to the church at Corinth. Now, we've already talked about these folks. Look at what he says to them in chapter 5. This is a letter that went to them. Of all the things that he wants to talk to them about, here's one of them. Let's read it to the other. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And all the people said, gross. That's not, that's not good, right? And look at what he says. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Yeah, I'm just going to let that lay there for a minute. That's heavy. And it's humbling. And it's difficult. And you know what? Most of us in the room have never seen a church walk through the kinds of steps that Jesus has described or that Paul is applying to this particular local church at this time. It's very difficult. Look at the last two verses in this same chapter. Paul is talking about this issue through the whole chapter. And look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Remember, he's writing the letter to them. He's saying, what do I have to do with judging people on the outside? And he could have supplied the, the collective view. What do you or I have to do with judging people on the outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge, the church. You're to judge them. And look at what he says. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen, this is only possible if you have an understanding of membership in a local church. Who has authority over these people? Who has the authority, the keys? Who has the ability and the right to actually speak into uh, the life of a brother or sister in Christ who's begun to live in this kind of way? Paul identifies the people in Corinth as either inside of the church or outside of the church. And he says the church has got no right to be judging people on the outside of the church. People who have, are completely disinterested in Christ or in God, that there is a holy God and that he exists. Or they have no interest in that. They're living their life the way they want to live their life. And we should expect them to do that. But within the church, there, there's a judgment that ought to happen. There are some decisions that will need to be made at times. When it comes to a point, if a member of the church is in willful, blatant, public, repetitive sin, there comes a time when they are removed from the membership of the church. It's exactly what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 18. And Paul's applying it to them. This is church membership, a piece of it, that every Christian is called to want and accept mutuality and accountability in the life of a local church. I'm a pastor in a church, but I'm not perfect. I sin. I sin in the things that I say. I often sin in the things that I think. <laughs> I sin in the way that I do things. I need people in my life 
who when they see me wandering off of the path will not just let me take a walk blithely into the woods. They will come for me. I need you to come for me. If you see me wandering into sin, over and over, come for me. And when you sign up and you say, hey, I want to belong to a local church, you're saying, brother, sister, come for me. Do not let my life get so far afield that I ruin my family, that I make a wreck of the reputation of Christ and his church. Don't let me ruin my marriage. Don't let me ruin my reputation here at work and the work that I've done, the testimony of Christ in the workplace. Don't let me just wander away. Come for me. We need people in our lives who won't just say what we want them to say to us. We need people who won't just constantly affirm us. Oh, brother, I understand. That's so hard, and I feel for you, and I'm so sad that you're going through. Oh, I understand. Yes, maybe you just have to make that decision, and and that might be the best thing. No, we need people who will tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. We need people who will point us to truth. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. Even once we come to faith in Christ, our hearts can deceive us. And sin, is it not pleasant for a season? And in the midst of that season, if you're playing around with it and it goes on very long, the fallout, the collateral damage, the shrapnel of that sin hits the people who are closest to you first. Eventually, it hits the entire church family, and it brings pain just like it did right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in that instance. That's what Paul's talking about. So we need others to point us to the truth. This is what it means to want and accept mutuality and accountability in the local church to live together with one another. The best place for that to happen is not necessarily in this room on a Sunday morning in pews, uh, although it can happen as we hang out together before and after. Uh, But one of the best places is within our groups, within our Foothills groups, when there's 12, 15, or 20 of us, or depending on your group size, a little bit more than that, shouldn't be, but sometimes it is. Or certainly in a smaller unit, like with our deep groups, where there's three or four men or three or four women who are pressing into Scripture together. And hearing that from one another, to call one another to repentance and checking on one another so we don't get too far afield. I want to, before we transition to, uh, to talk about the fact that this dark story here in 1 Corinthians 5, I think actually has a bright ending. If you were to go all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you see Paul talking about this, this situation again. I think he does at least. He comes back to this and he reminds him, hey, this brother who caused all this pain in the life of the church... And it's not hard to imagine how that would be, right? Because uh, that would be true in your own family. If you have a son or a daughter, or if you had a mom or a dad who lived their life very far from God, you you felt the shrapnel, you felt the difficulty of of what that was like in your family. And you can see that that would be true in a church family, a church that would have to go to that extent to exclude someone for a period of time. But he says, listen, this has happened, and, and it took place, and this brother caused pain. But then he says this, he says, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort and reaffirm your love for them. You see, that's the posture of grace that we ought to have. It sounds very difficult and very straightforward and kind of in your face to say, wait a minute, we're we're affirming or we're disavowing people's professions of faith by reason of how they live their life and over and over we're trying to go with them, we're trying to hold their hand, we're trying to uh, beg them and plead with them and pray for them to follow Christ and if they don't, we exclude them. But over time, if that exclusion has the work that God intends for it, there will be a time when they turn and they want to come home. 
and we ought to be waiting by the door. And we ought to turn to them. And we ought to reaffirm our love for them and comfort them. Can you imagine? Listen, sometimes the sin is grave and it's profound. And it gets to the level when you've told the whole church, a lot of people know your business. Imagine the weight of shame and guilt that you would carry. Reaffirm your love for them and comfort them. I think this sad story in 1 Corinthians 5 has a bright ending in 2 Corinthians 2. And, it's, and God's put it there so that we can say, hey, this is your posture. When it's difficult and it's hard and you're moving through this process, pray to the Lord of heaven and earth that he would bring a heart back. And when he does, and when they say, I'm through with this, may I come home, you say, brother, we've been waiting for you. We can't wait for you to come home. We love you. Tell us again how you love Christ. Tell us again about when you, were, when you came to faith. And, and, and we do that, right? I was struck again when we, when we sang Cornerstone earlier this morning and, and that, that last verse. It speaks of the, I think, of the need for mutuality and accountability in the local church. When he shall come with trumpet sound. It's a prayer. Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. That's a prayer, right? That's where I want to be when the trumpet sounds. I want to be dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before. I know that only Jesus can do that, but the testimony of all of these scriptures that I've dragged you through this morning is this. You will not get there on your own. You need each other. You need to join hands and lock arms with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to take each other from this shore to the next. It is God's design, and it is good. Church membership means that we are not just accountable to each other, but we are accountable for so many things. It's not just that you vote on the budget at the end of the year for a new year. It's so much more than that. Did you know that as a member of the church, you're, you're accountable for choosing and appointing leaders in this church, men who will be of a, a, a good report, right? Men who have a good reputation, men who are examples that you're willing to follow. That's your responsibility as a member of a church. It's your responsibility to see that the church preaches the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2, it's your responsibility. It's the responsibility of teaching pastors to make sure that we do that. It's the responsibility of an eldership to see that we do that. But brothers and sisters, it is your responsibility because we're just people. We need you to press in with us. Preach the gospel, brothers. Teach the gospel. Don't get too far afield from that. Please keep us, keep us in the gospel. It's, it's your responsibility to, to commission and send out missionaries from this church. It's not just the work of a missions team. It's the responsibility of all the members. When we stand and we commission a missionary to go, that's, that's part of our responsibility as a church. The Bible shows us these three ways that I think help us to see that local church membership is something that's expected, even if you can't find an explicit verse for it. Because every Christian is called to identify with and belong to a local church. And every Christian is called to follow their spiritual leaders in a local place. Every Christian is called to want and accept and live in and live out mutuality and accountability in a local church. So if you are a Christian this morning, ask yourself this question, where am I a member of a church? To what church am I a member I'm not just asking you, what church has got my name on the list? What church do I attend and listen to the preaching or enjoy the worship? 
I'm asking you, what church have you invested yourself on? You've identified yourself. I'm a member. I belong here. I'm in. No question. I'm committed. I'm going to follow the spiritual leaders in this place. I belong to you as my brothers and sisters, and I want you to speak into my life as I speak into yours, and let's help one another get to glory together. More and more, even sincere Christians today view the church as a service to attend where you come and you sit in a room like this, and you sit next to people that you may know or you may not know very well at all. And then you go out and you try to live your life for Jesus through the week on your own. That is at best naive and at worst arrogant because there is an entire world, an entire culture that presses in on what it means to have faith in Christ and live for him. And there is an adversary called the devil and he is going to press in on your life and he's going to do all that he can to trip you up and discourage you and distract you along the way. We need one another. This is not the way that God designed the church to be, to be out there and to be kind of lone ranger Christians. The church is not an event that you passively attend and watch on a Sunday morning and then go out and try to live your life. It is a family, it is a flock, it is a body, it is a bride, it's all of those things. But the church is where we commit to one another, to follow our spiritual leaders together, to walk together in mutuality and accountability, making disciples of each other and making disciples among all the nations until he comes again. That's what it means to be a member of the church. And, and I'm just, I'm just going to to resist putting your name on the line for any of that. To push back and say, I, I don't, I'm still not going to join a church. I'm not going to be a member. To resist putting your name on the line for that. Can I, I, I'm just might as well be blunt. I've been blunt all morning. That is not a biblical conviction. That is an individualistic, independent, American, give me some elbow room, don't get in my face too often, preference. It's not a biblical conviction. Put your name on the line. Identify with a body of believers and get in there with one another and live for Jesus and help one another do the same. And see the world change through the witness that we have together. I know that some of you, not all of you, are, are necessarily followers of Christ. Can I, just, can I just tell you the good news of Jesus very quickly? Because before you can ever become part of the church, you've got you've to get to the place where you can say with Peter and the rest of those disciples and people in this room, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You're the Savior. You're the only way. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and he lived the life that none of us could live. He lived perfectly before a holy God. He pleased God in every single way. Every thought that he had, every word that he said, every deed that he did, it was all perfect. And none of us fall into that. We've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin, the payback for our sin, is death, ultimately. There's lots of brokenness that happens in our lives, but ultimately we die separated from God for eternity. But God in his goodness sent Christ, and he lived the life we couldn't. And he died the death that we deserve to die, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And when he did that, he snatched those keys from the evil one and he handed them to us to share the gospel. But he's got them. He opened the door to eternal life. And he invites you to turn away from your own self-reliance and from your sin and put your faith and trust in him. The one who has defeated death and hell and the devil. And he will give you life and he will reconcile you to the God who created you and fashioned you and he will set you on a course of living for him with his power, not on your own. That is the good news in a nutshell. And he invites you to come and follow him. If you're nearby and you're not a member of a church, we would love for you to consider becoming part of this church. 
uh, there's a pathway. I think there was a slide. Adam probably already had it up there. It just kind of shows you what happens. There's a, there's a course we actually ask you to come to, and, and then we ask you to sit down with one of our elders or pastors and have a conversation, and we ask you about the gospel and how Christ came into you, all of those kinds of things. And then we ask the church family to affirm you. We introduce you to the whole family and ask them to affirm you. It's kind of a process. The main point is we use a process to get to this act of discipling people to see that the church is a family and a body and we belong together. So, hey, listen, uh, a couple of, couple of real simple action points. If, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, but you want to have a bigger, deeper com- uh, conversation about the gospel and what it means, you can grab one of those cards out of the pew and just write, Christian, question mark. And that means, hey, I want to have a conversation about the gospel a little bit more. You can just write Christian, Christian question mark, and you can give it to one of, one of us, or you can give it to the guest services folks on the way out. If you're interested in membership in this church, you want to have a deeper, bigger conversation about that, then just write membership and put a question mark there and do the same thing with that card, all right? I'm, I'm long enough. It's 20 after. Whew. I'm tired. Are you tired? <laughs> Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word, and I... I th- God, I thank you for uh, I thank you for the privilege of teaching the Bible with people. And um, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that this church was born and how it was raised and nurtured and cared for over the years. That it's a group of people who want to open their Bibles and look into the Scripture and see what God has to say. And so, Father, I'm I'm grateful for that because I know on a morning like this when it's longer than normal uh, that many of the folks in here are are with it and leaning in. So I'm grateful for that. I thank you for patience and grace and all of those things, God. And, Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for the church, the called out ones. You've brought us from death to life, from darkness to light. And one day you will redeem us forever. And we are looking forward to that, Jesus. I pray that those who are not yet members of a church locally, that they would lean in and say, hey, what steps do I need to take? How can I be part of a local church where I live? If it's here at Foothills or if it's somewhere else, wherever they live, that they would do that. And if there's someone in the room this morning, Father, that says, I want to have more of a conversation about the gospel. I've heard it maybe a time or two, but I want to know more about Christ, and I'm willing to ask my questions and have them answered. I pray that they do that today. Thank you again for allowing us to meet together in this room, to hear from you, to celebrate together. Help us as we worship you one last time as we sing together. In Jesus' name, amen.